The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Tonight's the second talk on generosity and here at the center we use often use the Pali word instead of the English word generosity. We use the word dana, D-A-N-A. You might hear that around. It's, it's always troublesome when you come to a place and people use words and have no idea what they mean. So, but we use dana because uh, instead of the word generosity, which is not a bad translation, but dana is, is more than just generosity. It's it's really meant to remind us of a very deep practice. And it goes beyond just leaving a donation at Common Ground Meditation Center or something like that. It's really, you know, at the heart of living a happy and skillful life. Someday we'll have some artist in our community do a nice drawing or painting that we'll put over the donation bowl and it will have the words receiving freely giving freely, then who knows what else that they'll, they'll put there. But the idea that this is really, more than anything, it describes our existence. And last week I mentioned, uh, to some extent I mentioned that when we look out at our world, not just human culture, but just the world as a whole, it's not so much that uh, generosity stands out as the exception, but it's much more that stinginess stands out. So I want to talk a little bit more about this tonight and talk about the power of intention, like what is the relationship between intention and generosity? So you know we're all animals here in this room. We all have the instincts or the qualities that other animals have like wanting to survive. So as we live our life, on some level, we're all scoping out the moment uh, and aware of what looks dangerous, what looks attractive, what might support my life, like better shelter, more food, somebody to mate with, what can I get in the way of my life, some kind of threat to my safety. And that's just uh, that kind of tension and that, that um, sort of fear-based relation, relation or relating, that's just active so much of the time for us. But even though that that, even though that's the case for us and for all animals, all beings really, there's a difference. Like, you know, you, you could see a cat waiting for a mouse, but you wouldn't necessarily, it wouldn't occur to you to think, well, that cat's being greedy, because the cat's just doing what it does. Or if you see a bird feeding its baby chicks, you know, and you know how maybe you've seen this, you know, the little chicks are kind of 
trying to outposition the other chicks to have their beak the biggest and the most, you know, wide open, closest to the mom, so they get the worm. But we don't think about it as being greedy. When we think of greediness, it's a special phenomena where there's a human being and we have that natural, you know, wanting what's pleasant, what's good, wanting to get away from what's unpleasant and dangerous. We have that like all animals, but we have this additional capacity to think about it. So I not only have needs, you know, like I'm a little cool or I'm a little hot, I'm a little bored, I'm a little, you know, overwhelmed. So I can have needs, but then I can think about my needs. I can worry about my needs. I can compare how much I think my needs are compared to Nick's needs or somebody else's needs. I can feel like nobody's ever paid attention to my needs or I can feel so grateful that everyone's paid attention to my needs. So we can spin quite a bit. We can really create realities that arise out of the very ordinary and unavoidable experience of, you know, having fear, having desire, being attracted, being repulsed. These are ordinary things that kind of are hardwired, you know, it's not, I don't know, it's, it would be hard to imagine a creature, human creature or any kind of creature, not aware of what's pleasant and what's unpleasant. You know, we need that sensitivity, it just kind of comes with life. We can't really imagine life without that sensitivity of what's pleasant and unpleasant. But this extra part, this is something really important to contemplate. Like, how much do we need to think about what we're attracted to or what we're repulsed by? What's the value in that? And this is where generosity, I think generosity comes in. In a way, uh, Gail Iverson on Sunday morning, I gave some version of this same talk and she mentioned she had seen somewhere or read somewhere that squirrels are, you know, they've evolved that they conveniently misplace 15% of the acorns that they bury and hide. And it isn't that somehow nature couldn't figure out how to make squirrels more efficient at remembering where they bury their acorns, but that it's just a, a wonderful synchronicity because they're dependent on there being a lot of oak trees. So it makes a lot of sense that as a community of squirrels, it's not really going to help them. It takes quite a long time for an acorn to become an acorn producing oak tree. But it makes a lot of sense in the very biggest picture for them to misplace 15% of their acorns. And this is what I meant that nature, when we look at things with this sort of relaxed gaze, we look at the whole picture with a relaxed gaze, we see that stinginess is really the rare thing. And the natural thing, the thing we see mostly are systems, are ways of interacting, ways of uh, sort of patterns of interdependency 
that are, are quite amazing and beautiful and you know makes people imagine there's got to be a God because it's so perfect how it all sort of weaves and works together when you look at nature, when you look at environments or because the system see we from our point of view from our con, uh, conventional point of view which is really based on separation and see what that really means is that as an animal we have the survival instinct which means we're sensitive to what's dangerous and we're sensitive to what's supportive and because as an animal who's developed language we can think a lot about that sensitivity we can concoct all kinds of stories based coming out of that sensitivity like I mentioned earlier how needy I am how fortunate I am I hope you guys don't take what I have we can have all kinds of stories that are isolating and fragmenting reinforce the sense of separation so for us it doesn't it doesn't even occur to us that this whatever you want to call this this reality this universe the world that this isn't an interaction of lots of separate things but the diversity or the display really arises out of wholeness but because of our con conditioned way of thinking we don't see the wholeness we're kind of oblivious to it most of the time what we see is diversity right the example I often use is like when you walked into the meditation hall we don't see it as a one thing we notice oh there's Dill there's Corey there's Maria there's the wall I like those lights why do they have those dumb chairs I don't like those hard pillows I like the soft pillow you know why does Mark get to sit up high <laughs> you know so we're, we the mind sees the diversity and then it conveniently or unfortunately it reacts things it likes it leans into things it doesn't like we kind of suppress or react to in one way or another so then it always surprises us and it mystifies us when we um, you know contemplate nature contemplate galaxies or you know little microbes so no matter if we're looking at the big picture or microscopic pictures it mystifies us how integrated how synchronistic how beautifully things work together and then we start to think well maybe we have original sin that somehow has separated us from the, the beauty that we sometimes can glimpse when we just see how systems how it all works together but I think it's really missing this point that this world of ours that we live in really isn't a world of diversity it really is a world of wholeness and the diversity is an expression of wholeness instead of wholeness which this is the way we conventionally think wholeness is this amazing coming together of diversity like how the squirrels work with the oak trees that just seems so mystifying to us because we think of them as separate things 
and that somehow they've figured out how to work together, let alone the more complicated systems that are working together. You like the bacteria in our gut and our intestine, you know. Like how we could somehow convince those bacteria to get in there and to help us break down the food and, you know, things like that. So the reason I want to spend time on this is because in terms of generosity, uh, we want to we want to at least hold out hold out the possibility that Donna generosity this natural way of receiving and giving this natural way of just participating in life that it's actually the easiest thing it isn't like hard work like I'm a separate being that needs to learn how to act as part of a community, you know, or part of a world, or part of a family, or part of an intimate partnership. It's just the other way around. It's like we should be mystified, like amazed by the feelings of separateness and, uh, you know, all the different flavors of that competition and fear. So, one of the, uh, in a way we could say that the whole reason the Buddha makes such a big deal of mindfulness, this uh, practice of being relaxed and alert, clearly knowing things as they are, is so that as that power of simple awareness develops, we're able to start noticing what we call intentions in the mind. These are the kind of the force, the force of the mind. Intention comes out of what's been conditioned. So the, it's like an about to moment. So we, we're having lots of intentions in every moment probably because different sort of strands of conditioning are being triggered just by like, just by being in this kind of a situation all kinds of conditioned habits are being triggered. Some are getting more triggered than others. But different impulses, compulsions, intentions, motivations are being triggered. And some of those motivations or intentions that are getting triggered are really coming, arising out of ignorance, out of this sense of diversity and separation, not wholeness. But some intentions, some uh, sort of about to's, something that we're about to think, about to say, about to do, some of those about to's are flowing out of a more uh, wise view or a view that's uh, coming out of wholeness or non-diversity, or fullness, or emptiness, is what we often like to say in Buddhism. So, our job, you know, as uh, somebody who suffered enough that we're interested in paying attention to why we suffer so much, you know, that means we're a spiritual seeker or a practitioner. So, as a practitioner, we're willing to cultivate mindfulness enough so that we can begin to be aware of intention in the mind. We're not just blind to intention, because it's pretty subtle, as I'm sure 
you can understand. It's really easy to be distracted in life. I mean, it's, we can be so distracted we don't even realize we're driving home or we don't even realize what we've said, let alone recognize the different intentions in the mind. So we cultivate mindfulness so there's a possibility of recognizing the intentions. And then we become a student of intentions. And we begin to recognize the different intentions. And it's like we start to understand the particular flavor of intentions. Like, is this intention arising out of a narrow, separate view? Or is this intention arising out of a whole or full or empty view? wise view? Is it, is, is, it, does the, is the intention flavored by constriction, by contraction, by weight? Or is the intention flavored by release or lightness or freedom? And we're just looking. And not to judge ourselves or to judge the mind or to judge the intention, but just because we care, really, we look. Because we can't, like in terms of contemplating generosity, this first of the ten paramis, that the perfections of the heart, as it's called in the Buddhist tradition, and we'll be going through the other nine over the months ahead. But in terms of contemplating generosity or dana, this first parami, we wanna, uh, we we can't just assume like we could we could just think, okay. Okay, we're studying generosity, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna smile even though I don't really feel like it. I'm gonna talk or I'm gonna listen even when I feel like leaving. I'm gonna give even when I don't feel like it because I'm supposed to or it's good to do that. But we, so we really wanna get over that simplistic view of being good. Like being good means how we behave on the surface and really look at where our actions or non-actions are coming from. Because really any particular action, any particular word could either arise out of generosity or out of fear. And you can't really tell by the action itself or the words themselves. So we might see somebody doing something really beautiful, but it doesn't mean we don't really, unless, unless we know that person well or have some real intuition, we don't really know what's going on in that person's heart. Whether they're doing this to be seen, whether they're doing this because they feel guilty, whether they're doing this because their heart is just naturally open, naturally generous. It's the nature, taking care of nature. Maybe you remember last week I, I read that section from Neem Karoli Baba, this well-known Indian saint that made a big in impact in the, in the United States. Uh, a number of people like Ram Das, some of you have heard of Ram Das, famous back in the 60s and 70s. He was a Harvard psychologist and researchers on, researcher with LSD until he got kicked out of Harvard and then became a spiritual seeker. And he met Neem Karoli Baba in India and a number of other people um, who later became good teachers, um, worked with him, but he had this, actually it wasn't even Karoli Baba, I'm sorry, it was uh, um, Punaji, 
another sort of Indian saint a little like uh, 15, 20 years later. But anyway, he had this example of when your left hand puts food in your mouth, you don't think of your left hand as being generous. And so, you know, if we could imagine the whole world being an organism, you know, we even have words now for it like Gaia, sort of the earth as an organism. And we're just cells in the organism, you know, white blood cells, they operate pretty independently, but they're all, you know, when the system is harmonious, the white blood cells are really working for the whole. So we can't, we can't tell unless we observe or unless we're intimate with these intentions and we really taste, in a sense, taste where they're coming from. We see where they're coming from. Are they coming out of wholeness or emptiness? Are they coming out of isolation or separateness, out of fear, greed, neediness? And then we can start playing. Once we're aware that this is true, that there are lots of intentions in any moment, some of those intentions are relatively beautiful, or what we usually would call skillful. A skillful intention is just an intention that leads in the direction of release, freedom from suffering. An unskillful intention is just an intention that leads towards contraction or suffering. So once, we're, once we can pay attention at this level and in moments, this is why we do sitting meditation, because when we're sitting, it's a relatively refined situation and because of the refinement, because we're in a room that's relatively quiet, in a posture that's relatively comfortable, it's just relatively easy to notice the subtle aspects of the mind, this level of intention. And then in noticing it, we can begin to play. You know, we just begin to see how it works because sometimes there will be an unskillful intention but because of our condition, it just has a lot of momentum when it gets triggered. So we're sitting here and we notice someone sitting really still and their body seems really relaxed. And all of a sudden, that image triggers an intention to think thoughts that I'm no good, I'll never be good. I'll never be still like that person. I'll never be able to meditate, you know. Or, you know, if you have a different kind of conditioning, you might see somebody who looks a little sleepy or a little sloppy in their posture, you know. And just that image can be the cause of intention to judge that person or to have pride. So, we're sitting here, we see that, we feel the momentum, and maybe we're swept into judging that person and feeling like we're a better meditator or feeling so bad because we could never be that good as we imagine the other person is or whatever kind of thought that might get triggered. But it's like, it's like an education. Each time we connect the intention with what comes from it, what flows out of it, we learn, we begin to discern, oh yeah, this was constricted and it led to suffering. This is unskillful and it led to suffering. This was skillful and it led to release. And over and over we see that.
And here's the important thing. And we talked about this in the last series of talks. Remember, we had the five aspects of practice. And the third aspect was cleansing the mind. And when we're cleansing the mind, we're in this kind of balance where the mind's agitated, the mind's reactive, but we're not indulging in the reactivity, but we're not suppressing it. We're just there. And that's that place of watching or knowing intentions. And so what we can do is we purify the unskillful intentions by just feeling the compulsion without acting it out. Feeling the feelings of insecurity without thinking, without proliferating around those thoughts of insecurity. It's there, you know, that pain, that urge in the heart, it, it, it's like conditioned to take us into thought, but in a sense, we're not going there because it hurts and it will hurt more if we go into thoughts. So we just stay with the hurt, just the ache, just the compulsion, just that unskillful intention. Because, you know, it comes, it keeps coming, it goes away, it comes. It, so it, it's not going to disappear necessarily immediately, especially if it's getting triggered by something. And that alone is a generous act. But, but then we can also, you know, in the moments we're going to see beautiful intentions arise. Like the intention to wish well for somebody. Or the intention to take care of ourselves. Or the intention to forgive ourselves. To forgive other people. There are many beautiful intentions. Generosity as an intention is ultimately about giving the self away. This is ultimately what we have to give away. When you look at any authentic act of generosity, it's always some action that arose when the self got out of the way. When the self, meaning the, um, the self based on neediness, on separation, on fear. You know, we, we, the classic examples are when you see a parent, even though, you know, you could say, well, that parent is just doing it for their kids. But when a parent is really being a parent, <laughs> you know, they, all of the programming to respond to unpleasantness by removing themselves or to go toward pleasantness, all of that sort of has to be put aside because there's this, kid that needs you. Just like the squirrel, you know, for that personal squirrel, he, it would really want to find those 15% of the nuts. So to, to be willing to be part of the whole and to respond as part of the whole, like the whole family, the whole partnership, the whole world, the whole universe, what is that? It's a, it's a letting go of self. It's a letting go of the separate self. That's what generosity ultimately is. But we can't do that directly because then it's, it's just an imitation. You know, like I imitate what I imagine somebody who didn't have a self would do, which is a very self-centered activity. All of that is. And it would, uh, you know, it wouldn't feel good and it wouldn't look good for those around me either. But what I can do, and what we can all do, 
is we can just become more sensitive to intentions and the first act of generosity is just to begin to notice all of the self-centered intentions and to be determined not to act them out like to feel what's alive in the heart to be intimate with the, what's alive in the heart but not to feel like acting it out is going to help anybody, myself or anybody. And this is something we've all have learned already. I mean, anybody who's been able to have decent relationships with partners or with siblings or with friends, we have to learn this. Because if we don't know how to suppress, skillfully suppress, skillfully abandon unwholesome intentions, you know, we're going to just be acting out in ways that it will be intolerable to other people. <coughs> Maybe I'll just say one more thing and then open it up for discussion. This uh, middle ground that I talked a lot about over the last few weeks and now I'm talking about in terms of this middle ground of seeing the intentions in the mind, being compelled to act them out, or being compelled to not want those intentions because we recognize them as bad and wanting to d distract yourself from them or deny them or destroy them. This is a real messy place in practice. It's actually, it seems messier to know we have all these intentions going on. It's like it can, we can imagine that it would be better to be ignorant of all the different compulsions, intentions, especially when we're seeing them in terms of their moral quality. I know that's sort of a loaded word, but by moral I mean there are implications to each intention. Like it actually matters whether we act out our intentions. That's kind of a heavy trip. You know, like if I'm acting out my greediness or my fear, there are real consequences, not just for me, but for everybody who's around me. Or if I'm uh, living out of real compassion or real forgiveness, there are real beautiful implications for that. So it's a messy place because all of us, a sudden, we realize karma in the deepest sense like what we think, what we're intending, our motivations, our compulsions, they matter. There are implications to them. And yet we don't have perfect clarity. We don't really know what are wholesome, what are unwholesome. We're just sort of beginning to discern, like, is this a, a narrow intention that's just dressed up to look good? Or is this a you know, a bad intention, or is this a really good intention that sort of, I just don't recognize it? So we don't really know. A lot of times we don't know until we start bringing it into action. We start to speak, we start to do, and then later we sort of, it has like an aftertaste, and we realize, oh, that wasn't so wise, or oh, that really, that feels good. It's like the aftertaste is kind of like no trace, it's just a, a lightness and it feels really clean. Like what we did is really clean and reflecting back on it, we feel good. It's like with generosity, it said, I think the Buddha said, 
it feels good when we contemplate a generous act, like just giving away, giving the self away, or just responding appropriately, naturally in the moment. It feels good to think about it before it happens. It feels good to do it. It feels good to think about it after it happened. And it's just the opposite, like if I'm trying to manipulate everybody here to like me, if I reflected on that, I would notice, like even like if maybe before the talk, I was in my room thinking, okay, now how can I really wall them tonight? And then that, if I would look, if I would have a moment of mindfulness, I would see that's really tight. That's heavy. It's heavy to be the person that wants, that needs to wow people. And then even in this moment, you know, in giving a talk, being the person who needs to wow everybody is tight. And in reflecting back on having just given a talk, which was in part all about wanting to wow people, that's also tight. So this is how we, we learn about what's skillful and what's unskillful. And we're willing to, set, to be in that mess, to, to be unclear, and to trust that just being there clarifies it. It's like just being in the mess, that's really our job. So instead of, the, instead of thinking, okay, we're, we're talking about generosity these weeks, so I should be generous. It's really, the point of generosity is to contemplate the presence of generosity and the absence of generosity. It's not like all of a sudden we're going to try to be generous, but we want to contemplate, like when the heart is naturally generous, we're coming out of wholeness, we're coming out of that feeling of abundance, where there's a sense, there's always something to give, then we want to notice that feeling of abundance, of generosity, of freely giving freely receiving what's offered at whatever comes our way. And then when there's tightness or contraction or constriction, we just want to notice that. And just the noticing of those things will be self-correcting. Maybe people have examples of that in your life too, where you, you just notice that being aware was enough for the whole system to change. That's how this whole system works. It's not like we're all responsible to figure it out, like how we're going to be synchronistic, you know, and how we're going to like coordinate with the trees. Okay, you trees, you give out carbon dioxide, and well, I forget how it works, but no, you get out oxygen at least part of the time, and we breathe it in, we give out carbon dioxide, and nobody figures it out. The this sort of intelligence doesn't have a center. That's why in Buddhism we have these concepts like anatta, the not self. It's really this. There is obviously some real intelligence, or I'm not sure what the right word is, beauty, intelligence, to the world. But it doesn't have a center. It doesn't belong anywhere. And so, uh, from you know, the way the Buddha taught is we actively contemplate the lack of center. And so we're trusting wisdom, but it's not personal, the wisdom that we trust. So we, have, we can't feel like we have to be the holder of the wisdom that's being realized. It doesn't belong to anybody. It doesn't mean there isn't wisdom that arises in our lives. But we don't want to try to own it, because then it stops working. 
the wisdom is just here, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it isn't located anywhere. It really, the wisdom is like there when the self-centeredness, when that view of apartness weakens or falls away. So I'll leave it here so that people can share from your own experience or feel free to ask questions about the talk tonight, about generosity, but it'd be nice to hear from people about what you've noticed in your own life around this practice of giving and receiving without suffering. So what comes to mind? And if you speak up, please say your name too. Yeah. Understand the understand my motivation. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so when we have those examples in our lives, you know, then we can um, we can use them as models, like just just to reflect on, you know, I don't have grandkids, but I sometimes reflect on my relationship with our cat and uh, how easy that relationship is and how easy it is to love her, the cat, and uh, how easy it is to play with her, the kind of natural give and take. And then just to kind of contemplate, like, what's in the way of that? My naturally responding to her needs, being sensitive to her needs, but not being heavy, not like overdoing it or being neurotic about it. So we can, you know, use where it does, where the balance already exists, it can be sort of a, a, like a beacon for what might be possible in a more complicated relationship, like with a husband or a partner. Um, and maybe, you know, why not there too? Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Bonnie. ways to practice for me for whatever reason is generosity and say. But when I examine the motivation behind it, I, it gets a little tangled because I recognize that the reason I'm being generous ultimately is because I want it to benefit me. You know, I want to generate good karma in this moment so my future moments will be positive. I want to learn good habits of generosity so that they come automatically so that someday millions of gazillion years from now I'll get to nirvana maybe. Mm -hmm. And so those are the kinds of things that I wonder, well, how generous is that? You know, if that's my focal point. So I well, I think we, we should ask you that question. How is it is it uh, constricting or is it conducive of release? The act, uh, the acts of generosity. Does it tighten up your heart or does it release? At this current moment, it's 
it's the positive release choice. It's it's a wonderful choice. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but but remember. Yeah. It, but I'm happy to be generous. That's what I want to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't second guess it because here's the thing: the act is what it is in that moment. That is the act. So, whatever wholesomeness or absence of wholesomeness there is in the act, it's there in the moment. So, you look at that. You look at it before you do it, you look at it while you're doing it, you look at it after you're doing it. And if there's unwholesomeness, you'll see it. If there's a, constra- a contraction or a constriction, you'll see it. And if there's not, there's not. It's a very beautiful thing to want to make our minds beautiful. It's a very beautiful thing to want to be free. There's nothing unwholesome about, about the, the desire to be free, the desire to be liberated the desire for the heart to release its fear, its greed, its confusion. Those are all, to me, beautiful things. That desire, for example, the desire that I have to be at ease in the world is not a contracting desire. The desire I have to be respected by you is a constricting desire. So. But you have to look. That's what what I meant earlier. You know, you can't tell by the actual gift whether it's wholesome or not. We just have to look, and we have to trust that. Then we we don't want to second guess. If we looked and it looks good, then it looks good. No, if later it feels, but if it's feeling a little off, it may be because you suspect it should be off, not because it is off. (laughs) Like maybe that's called doubt. You know, and maybe the doubt itself is constricting, but not necessarily the acts, but the doubting the, of the acts. And that may be part of a particular pattern to doubt that you're, that this goodness is good, <laughs> you know, which is really common for us to doubt our goodness or the goodness, if you don't want to make it so personal. What else comes to mind? Yeah, Judy. Generosity is more natural than stinginess, mm-hmm. um, which I can kind of see more maybe in the in the big scheme of things. But I'm thinking like if we have to be so vigilant and constantly aware of what is happening with us in terms of is this does this feel light or does this feel a little off? It just seems to me that stinginess might be just as natural as generosity, mm-hmm. especially since, like, we're, it causes, it's not something that just, we just do, it's like we're always doing this other thing and then we got to watch, we got to observe to know whether it is or isn't, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Well, here's the thing. Uh, what's happening here in this room is a natural unfolding. and. To whatever degree we feel committed to being mindful and paying attention, that's also a natural unfolding. So obviously not a lot of human beings do this practice, but um, when human beings have, are not overwhelmed by poverty or illness or war, and 
they get exposed to the possibility of developing mindfulness, they tend to be pretty interested in it. You know, if, if human beings aren't uh, addicted to various distractions or overwhelmed by things that animals and beings, human beings can get overwhelmed by, human beings have every incentive to be interested in being vigilant. We have every incentive to be mindful. It will unfold naturally. So there's two ways to look at the spiritual path. There's one way to think of it as a mountain that we got to climb. And it's like, you know, why the hell do we have to climb this mountain, you know? Or maybe I'll just hang out at the base of the mountain and maybe someday later I'll climb this mountain. But lo and behold, you know, we find ourselves with our backpacks on and we're walking up the mountain. We're, we're drawn to being vigilant. We're drawn to understanding the mind. We're drawn to being free from suffering. It's actually not that different than the survival mechanism. It's like when there's enough space, enough freedom from being overwhelmed, the survival mechanism, you know, which is mostly in our situation because we're mostly a, a cognitive beast, it's like psychological. It's like we're not so worried about a, a predator coming and eating us as much as we are of like uh, afflictive mind states. You know, those are more dangerous than, you know, being hit by a car or being eaten by a, a cougar or something like that. So when we have, when we're, we've got a moment, you know, this occurs to us. This predicament of being a human being occurs to us like, uh, why is my mind such a dangerous place? What's going on here? And then we begin to see that certain mind states have certain implications and other mind states have other implications. And we realize the karma of mind states, the consequences of certain mind states. And seeing that is the cause for vigilance. So in, in Buddhism, the way the Buddha taught, this insight into karma, that, that uh, thoughts are, in t uh, are an action and they have consequences. Intentional thoughts have consequence consequences and we have every sort of incentive to be aware of them. And in being aware of them, to naturally start abandoning the identification with the unwholesome thoughts, the thoughts that lead to to contraction and to allow wholesome thoughts to be moved, you know, into word, into action. So instead of thinking that we've got to climb this big mountain, uh, which often is how it is at the beginning of spiritual practice, we need to make this gradual transition as we become, uh, you know, more. Uh, just understanding life as a spiritual path. We have to understand the spiritual path as a natural unfolding or we'll give it up. It will feel too difficult. But it's like we can't help but doing the next thing. Signing up for the next retreat, showing up for the next sit, coming back to the next breath, seeing the next afflictive mind state for what it is. It just starts happening. Mindfulness starts uh, being seen as a natural and effortless process because it's now seen as nature. You know, just like those caribou that 
I don't know how far they walk when in their yearly migration, but it's, does anybody know, it's like, is it over a thousand miles? I think it can be really far every year, you know, and Danny was talking about the monarch butterflies that fly up all the way from Mexico. You know, if they thought about it, they'd never do it, but <laughs> they don't think about it. It's just nature doing its thing every year. There's actually no effort unless a mind separates itself from the whole and goes, oh my God, I got to fly from here to there, <laughs> you know, and why go there anyway? You know, so it's the sense of separation that makes it feel so overwhelming. But if we just give ourselves to the present moment, the present moment evokes the right response. But we have to give ourselves to the present moment. That's the trick. And that's really the job of a, you know, a spiritual seeker is somebody who realizes that having pulled ourselves apart so many times that that doesn't work. So more than anything we realize spiritual uh, practice is about surrendering. Surrendering to the natural forces. The intelligence is built into the system. We give up trying to figure it out and make it work. You know, trying to make it work is what the world is built on. That's what the world, people are trying to make it work in all kinds of ways with various, you know, skill and intelligence and a lot of ignorance. But when our life becomes a spiritual life, that's when we start to mistrust Mark trying to make it work and trust the whole, trust the, the sort of uh, the system itself. So it's, a, it's a, like a letting go. So part of that system, and in Buddhism, sort of the background of the whole system is awareness or that luminosity. So that's fundamentally what we trust. We relax into that simple, clear knowing. And then everything else, of course, is included. We have to give surrender. This is the ultimate act of generosity. In any moment when we give ourselves over to the moment, you know, that's a real surrender, a real giving away. It's a bit of a death to all of our compulsions to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and make it work and figure it out and get ahead. Hurts. I think that's really, it's a useful contemplation. And we can do it in hindsight. Like, you can look back on your life, Judy, and think about raising your son and surviving our marriages and dealing with our jobs. And, you know, and you can, it can be like how many mountains I've had to climb, you know, and how many more. Or we can look back on our life and we can just see our life as a natural tumbling, rolling forward. You know, many, infinite number of, you know, causes and conditions. And that there, there wasn't a somebody having to do all of that. There was a lot of activity, but we don't have to impute somebody who had to do all of that. that that's extra. And we can just sort of see it as like a, a natural unfolding, just like winter becomes spring. It's a natural unfolding. Maybe time for one more thought, if someone has something. Yeah, Nick. Do you think the ignorant are happier than the mountain climbers? Do, you, do I think the ignorant are happier than the mountain climbers? 
they're well, oblivious to all this stuff. They're just doing it. Uh-huh. Yeah, Whether right or wrong. They're well, miserable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, haven't you ever sat in a meeting or something? <laughs> <laughs> Neurotic and aggressive. And I'm sorry. Just <laughs> <laughs> feeling that neurotic aggression. Yeah, so, anyway, sorry. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, this is the question is can we remain an ignorant person? I mean, one of the things that seems to happen, I mean, the Buddha suggests that these cycles of suffering, samsara, can continue for an indefinite amount of time. But it seems, for me and for a number of people, that like it or not, it's out of our control, really. It's just part of nature. But like it or not, for some beings, the pain of being ignorant sort of jolts the mind in a way to, uh, to, its, uh, to this reflective mode, where it reflects on the pain of existence and gets curious about it in some way. And, and that curiosity is just the development of a reflective way of being in life or a mindful way of being in life. Using awareness to understand what's happening here and that has super implications. It's not that we do, it's not like we have to do something different but being aware of what's happening changes everything. And then once things change, that also changes everything. So the unpacking, the unwinding is also a natural force, but it requires suffering. So in the way the Buddha taught, he talks about like he he you know, he really talked all the time about causes and conditions, you know, cause and effect. So how suffering comes to be, he describes it very rationally. It arises out of suffering. Suffering leads to suffering. And then when he's asked, well, how does freedom from suffering arise? It also, freedom from suffering begins with suffering. But suffering leads to faith. Faith that it doesn't have to be this way. That's the kind of initial faith. That's that jolt. Because if we don't feel like there's any alternative, we just slide right back into ignorance. But when we get jolted out of ignorance, what really keeps us awake and interested in a reflective mode of being is that we're, we realize that there's suffering and we also have some sense that it doesn't have to be this way. That's called faith. That there's actually might possibly be a way to be released, fearless, full of love, full of sensitivity in this world. That we don't have to be tight, neurotic, aggressive creatures, as you so skillfully pointed out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I haven't been here for a couple of weeks, so of course I'm a raving lunatic. <laughs> I'm sort of like a no. exhibit A of <laughs> what you're asking about. <laughs> Doesn't stand out to me, Maria. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So let's just take a moment and let go of the words and just appreciate this faith that we have that there may be a, another way. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.